Philippians chapter 7 once again, and let's stand as we read. I think we'll read these verses down through here once again to get a feel for the flow, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be, rather it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, But I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. If I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. On the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of, the, the literally mind of the flesh, it's a New American Standard says set on, The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Well, we'll stop there. Let's pray before we're seated. Our Father, we pray for the power of Your Spirit here today. We ask You for Your Holy Spirit, for Your quickening, life-giving Spirit, for a spirit of faith and power and love and of a sound mind, for mercy, for help, for grace today, for utterance and for hearing, for understanding, for humility, for grace in every way. On this time, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, we've been considering for weeks now this last half of Romans chapter 7, and I've tried to present to you what I think is clearly the correct understanding of this passage. What is Paul talking about here from verse 13 down to verse 25? Well, he's not talking about the mature Christian's continuing battle with sin. That's not the subject here at all. That's not the flow here. He's also not talking about the need of an immature Christian to learn how to walk in the Spirit. That's not the context or the flow or the subject either. What is the subject? Well, the subject is the law, and particularly the goodness of the law and the limitations of the law. That's the subject here that Paul has been dealing with all the way through. And Paul is talking about why the law fails to deliver those who are in the flesh. Uh, He's talking about how sin in the members makes captives out of those who are of flesh sold into bondage to sin. And uh, that's the context here. And he's talking about a man to whom the commandment has come, a man who realizes for the first time the meaning of God's law and realizes that he's not good and sin comes alive in him and he begins to struggle and to try and want to keep the law and the more he does the more he realizes his bondage and failure and um, the more in captivity he is and a lot of the things that we um, have said about law and how the law stirs up sin I've just seen more clearly this time as we've gone through this that really all that is, is true, particularly for the man to whom the commandment has come. Uh, law increases sin in the man whom the Holy Spirit is dealing with and showing him the demands of the law, and he's trying to fulfill those demands. I mean, in one way, you can say law diminishes sin. For example, what would happen in America if we got rid of all the laws against murder? Would there be less murder? I don't think so. So the law is restraining sin in one sense outwardly. But what Paul is particularly talking about is what happens when the commandment comes and sin comes alive. And that's when you realize the power of sin in your life, and that's what he's talking about here. Well, um, this man is a man who's sold into bondage to sin. And I want to remind you again, That according to the Bible, every single person in this room is a slave. Every one of us is a slave. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. You might like to think that you're free, but you're not free. The only question is is whether you're going to serve a master who will give you life, who who will lift you up and elevate you and ennoble you and give you freedom, to do what's good or whether you'll serve a master who will debase you and defile you and make you unclean and make you shameful and ruin your life. That's the only question, is what kind of master will you have? It's not a question of whether you'll have a master or not. You are not free, and nobody is free. There is no place where you can step out from under God and be autonomous and not be stepping right under the devil when you step out from God. 
Again, the devil told Eve, you know, if you just, you, you can't trust God. You can't give your life to God. He's trying to ruin your life. You can't really give yourself to Him. You won't have any fun. You won't be like God. But if you would just disobey God and step out and be a neutral investigator and get free from God, then you don't have to serve anybody. Well, the fact is, as soon as she stepped out from under God, she stepped under Satan's power. You cannot be autonomous from God and not be under the slavery of the devil. So, Paul's talking here about the man who's of flesh, and the man who's of flesh is sold into bondage to sin. Now, what about these other two views of Romans 7 that I have said are wrong views? Uh, I pointed out, back at the beginning, that those views have been held by godly Christians, many godly Christians, down through the years. And so we know from that fact that they must have some valid or good points and some elements of truth, maybe lots of elements of truth in them. We know that. On the other hand, if they are not what is actually being taught here in Romans 7, then they may very well have some bad points and some hurtful things. And so, um, we need to be aware of these things. What are the good points and the bad points of uh, these views that have been held on Romans 7? If you listen to the radio very much, listen to sermons, or if you read books, you will run into various views on Romans 7 taught by godly men. In fact, uh, I think John Piper just recently finished a series on Romans 7 that some of you were listening to. So um, the question comes up, um, how do we understand these things? We need to be able to have some kind of understanding it, it, just for this reason alone, that we wouldn't write off somebody that doesn't agree with what we happen to believe. And you've got to realize that if godly men hold to a view, They've got reasons for that, and uh, they have the Spirit of God too, and we need to listen. And yet at the same time, we need to realize that we shouldn't be um, a slave to anybody's teaching. We need to examine the Scripture ourselves and test things and try to understand things. So what I want us to do is to try to look at the positives and the negatives of one of these views today and uh, to try to help us... um, to be grounded in our own Christian life. None of this is complicated. Now, the simplest things become complicated when the devil comes on the scene, but the things that are clear and, I mean, the things that are difficult become clear whenever the Spirit of God comes on the scene. So what we need is God to help us. And uh, we need to apply our hearts to the Scriptures and to cry out for discernment. If you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. So we have these promises. And I want to remind you again that in, in um, six chapters, actually almost seven chapters, Paul has only had one exhortation so far. All the rest of it has been truth, doctrine, understanding. And you could say, well, look, we need to get down to the practical stuff. He could have left out the first, 12, first 11 chapters. 
But the fact is, if you don't understand the truth and believe the truth, you can't live the practical stuff because what you believe shapes the way you live. And that's why Paul spends so much time on it. He wants us to understand, and we're capable of understanding. And things that seem difficult and hard to understand, we've got to go to God and cry out, help, Lord, help me to understand. He wrote this stuff not just for some pious type of theological gibberish, but he wrote it to Christians so that Christians could understand and, and understand how to face their lives and understand truth. And so we come to God and ask Him, Lord, help us to understand. Now, if somebody like John Piper holds to some view, that means that there's some good things about that view. You know that right off. There might be some wrong things, some bad things too. And we need to understand these things and sort them out and ask God to teach us. Uh, If you only believe something, because I've taught it for the last six or eight weeks or however long it's been, that's not a very good basis for believing it, isn't it? Is it? Because the next guy that comes along will convince you that black is white and white's black. You see, you've got to know yourself and understand yourself and be convinced yourself from the scriptures. So, what about this view then that we could call the reform view of Romans 7? And that view is this that Paul is speaking in Romans 7 about a Christian. Not only is he speaking about a Christian, but he's speaking about the Christian at his best. And not only is he speaking about the Christian at his best, but he's speaking about himself at the time of writing. Now, that's the big argument here. He's speaking in the present tense, so he must be talking about himself, and he must be talking about himself at the time of writing. That's the position. What What about it? Well, what are the good things about this view. The first one I would say is this. It acknowledges and takes seriously the Christian's battle with remaining sin. Uh, That's a good thing. That's a big thing. There are numerous groups such as the Nazarene, Church of the Nazarene, the Wesleyan Methodist, various holiness groups that teach some type of crisis experience which a lot of them call sanctification. And you have to get sanctified or be sanctified. When you have this experience of sanctification, then you enter into what Wesley called Christian perfection. And you never sin anymore, the way he defined sin. And some groups even say you never have any struggle anymore with sin. The reason you're struggling with sin is because you haven't yet been sanctified. And when you have that experience, you don't have any more conflict with sin. Now, the only way you can keep your sanity and hold that view is to redefine what sin is. If you have any imagination or understanding at all as to what sin is, and we'll talk about this more a little bit later on, but if you understand sin at all, you're going to end up with a nervous breakdown. And that has actually happened to a number of people. Harry Ironside who wrote a book on holiness, um, tells about his early days when he was with the Salvation Army. And the Salvation Army was a Wesleyan-type group taught that, this was back when they were really evangelical, they taught that you could enter into this experience of entire sanctification whereby you didn't have any more sin in your life. 
and that drove Harry Ironside to the nursing home. And while he was in there, he there was one particular lady there who was extremely godly, an elderly lady who was in there, and he finally came to the point, he said, I'm going to go to her. I know that she's sanctified. That is Christian perfection. I know that she is, and I'm going to tell, tell her about myself and how far short I'm falling of perfect Christ-likeness. And he went to her and bared his heart to her, and she broke down and confessed to him. She said, I have the same problem. Now see, what is that? That's, that's a false teaching that's putting in bondage the children of God is what it is. And uh, the Reformed view is, is honest about the Christian's continuing conflict with sin, and that's a big plus. The problem is, is that we have plenty of other Scriptures to teach that Christians have a continuing conflict with sin without misinterpreting Romans 7 and using that to teach it. You don't have to go to Romans 7 to prove that Christians have a continuing conflict with sin. But anyway, it is, it's, it, it is a good emphasis to acknowledge this reality. Second thing that is good about the Reformed view is that it takes seriously the condition of lost men. In fact, this is one of their main arguments that this passage is referring to a Christian. Uh, this man that Paul is describing delights in the law of God. And he realizes that the law is spiritual. And he realizes that the problem is in his flesh. And so on. Lost people don't do that. They don't delight in the law of God. They don't realize that the problem is in their flesh. Um, they don't realize that the law is spiritual. They don't confess that the law is good. So this is another very good thing about the Reformed view of, of Romans 7 is that it does acknowledge and have a real view, realistic biblical view of the condition of a lost man. Um, Arminians, on the other hand, tend to think that there's some kind of little spark of goodness. It may not be very much, but there's some kind of little spark of goodness in men. And they have the ability from themselves to respond to God. And uh, that's totally contrary to Scripture. We know that. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understands. There's none that seeketh after God. I have people ask questions there in Romania. They say, what about this guy out here in the jungle that's seeking after God? And what's going to happen to him? Well, show me that guy. See, the Bible says there is no one who seeks after God. If you see somebody seeking after God, it's because the Holy Spirit has done a work in their heart. So the Reformed view takes seriously the condition of lost men. But you see, it doesn't really prove anything when you come to Romans 7 because this is not a lost man as such that Paul is talking about. That's not what he's talking about. He's speaking about um, the man to whom the commandment has come. That is, a man who's being taught and drawn by the Holy Spirit. He sees that the law is spiritual, that it reaches down to his heart. Particularly this command of coveting is what God used apparently in Paul's life. And he sees that the law is spiritual and he wants to keep it, but he can't. And he's defeated by sin perpetually. And so um, a typical lost man could never say any of those things, but a man who's being taught by the Holy Spirit could say those things. And I proved that to you, I hope, last week by quoting John Bunyan's testimony. He was saying the very same things that Paul was saying right here. 
very same things. Um, and not only that, but you have to remember that Paul did not write the last half of Romans 7 at the time when he was lost. He wrote it as a Christian looking back with Christian understanding, interpreting for us what was going on, you see, back then. Um, a lost man going through this stuff, he didn't know up from down. I mean, you look back at your own conversion, you didn't even know what was going on. And you would, ne- right now, when you describe it as a Christian, you use language that you would never have used at the time because you didn't know anything. So Paul looks back here and he says, Look, this is what was going on. The law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. That's what was happening, you see. And he looks back and says, well, see, the real problem was sin in in the members, in the flesh. That's the real problem. And as he looks at what he was going through, the commandment has come to him, sin has come alive, and he dies. You see? And so he separates all that out and analyzes it. Now, again, we saw the very same thing last week when we read John Bunyan's testimony. He describes those things in terms that he would never have used back at the time he was going through it. But the description that he gives, as a Christian looking back, nevertheless is a true description of the reality of what was happening to him at the time. So that's all we're talking about here. Okay. Um, When the Reform says, well, what lost person would say that the law is spiritual? They wouldn't. But, But Paul isn't speaking about a lot, what a lost person would say at the time, you know. What lost person would say, well, the problem is in my flesh. Well, they wouldn't. But um, these are things that Paul sees now as a Christian as being the problem, and he looks back on it and describes the conflict that was taking place. Well, uh, the Reformed view acknowledges and takes seriously the Christian's battle with remaining sin. And it has a biblical view of the condition of lost men in general. Those are two positives. What are the negatives? Well, the number one negative, and this is huge, and it's very, very destructive. And that is that this view has caused multitudes, and I'm not talking about theory here. It has caused multitudes of people to settle down to defeat in the Christian life to one degree or another. And here's the way it works. You're struggling with some sin in your life that you can't seem to get victory over. And the devil brings to your mind Romans 7. And he says, well, after all, even the Apostle Paul himself had the same problem you do. He was a wretched man too. And he couldn't get victory over sin either. In fact, it might have been the same sin that you're trying to get victory over that he couldn't get victory over. So what you need to do, you know, you just need to face the fact this one is going to be here from now on out. You can't change in this one. Paul couldn't, but it's okay because even Paul couldn't do it. Now that is not theory. I'm talking about something that has multitudes of people have stayed enslaved to some sin or another by believing that lie that their sin can be excused by appealing to the Apostle Paul. And that's a reality. And beloved, 
This idea that you've got to be defeated by known sin is a, is a lie right out of the pit of hell. You do not have to be defeated by that sin that is facing you in your life. That is a promise of God that you don't have to be defeated by. You don't have to walk around with things defiling your conscience that you are enslaved to. The Bible says that that's not the case for a Christian. And I'll tell you this, I'll guarantee you this, if you think that you have to be defeated by sin, you are never going to get victory over it. Until you come to the place of seeing that this thing is vile and inexcusable, and you don't have to do it, and multitudes of Christians, godly men and women, are not doing it. And they have been delivered from it. Until you get to that place, you're going to go on excusing it. You're going to go on and be defeated by it. That's what's going to happen. I wonder about some of these guys that write on Romans 7. Have they never known a Valard or a Keith McLeod in their whole life? Evidently, they haven't. They've never known anybody that's walking in continual joy and victory in the Christian life. All they've known are wretched, miserable, defeated people. I really think that's the case. I mean, I lived with, with one of those men for months in his home, and I can tell you he's not a wretched man crying out, who will deliver me? He's a man full of joy and peace and faith and righteousness. That's what Paul says. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You can live a life of purity. You can live a life of victory. And this idea of, well, I'm defeated now. Go back here and get some comfort out of Romans 7 because Paul was defeated too. That's bad. And it's hurt people a lot. Beloved, if you're a Christian, you do not need to be defeated by sin. You were slaves of sin, but you've been made free from sin and you've become servants or slaves to God. That's what the Bible says. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you through the Spirit do mortify, put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. That means you're able to do it. And if you don't do it, you're either not a Christian or you're believing a lie. It's that simple. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. This guy in Romans 7 can't help it. But if you're a Christian, you don't have to let sin reign in your mortal body. Okay, that leads me to the second negative, which is closely related to the first one. The reform view of Romans 7 has led directly to the wretched man view of the Christian life. Now, what do I mean by that? <clears throat> the wretched man view of the Christian life. Well, this is a view that the more holy you are, the more wretched you'll be. Now, what's that mean? I've stated it in the worst light there. But the best way of looking at it is this. You'll be more holy, and the more holy you are, the more and more you will see your sinfulness, and the more it will grieve you. That's the best way of stating it. 
the more holy you are, the more you'll see your sinfulness and the more it will grieve you. And the more wretched you will be. Now, in case you don't believe that that's accurate, let me just read a quote. This is from A.W. Pink, who has a lot of good things to say in numbers of his books. But this is what he says, This moan, O wretched man that I am, expresses the normal experience of the Christian. And any Christian who does not so moan is in an abnormal and unhealthy state spiritually. The man who does not utter this cry daily is either so out of communion with Christ or so ignorant of the teaching of Scripture or so deceived about his actual condition that he knows not the corruptions of his own heart and the abject failure of his own life. Here's another one. Nor is it only the backslidden Christian now convicted who will mourn thus. The one who is truly in communion with Christ will also emit this groan and emit it daily and hourly. Every hour you're supposed to be groaning, O wretched man that I am. Here's another quote. May God in His mercy, I've got to put a little bit of ellipses in here because it's too long, but may God in His mercy grant us such a humbling view of our own uncleanness, this is a Christian now, that we shall join the apostle in crying with ever-deepening fervor. I mean, you think you've cried, wretched man that I am before, you're going to have to cry a lot worse than what you ever have. Ever-deepening fervor, O wretched man that I am. Yea, may God vouchsafe to both writer and reader such a view of their own depravity and unworthiness that they may indeed grovel in the dust before Him. And there praise Him for His wondrous grace to such hell-deserving sinner. Just a couple more quotes here. Mr. Bradford of Holy Memory, who was martyred in the reign of Bloody Queen Mary, this is a godly man, in a letter to a fellow prisoner in another penitentiary, subscribed himself thus. Now, this is the way he signed his letter. The sinful John Bradford, a very painted hypocrite, the most miserable, hard-hearted, and unthankful sinner, John Bradford. Now, that's being held up as a paragon of spirituality. If you could just sign your letters how wretched you are, how vile you are, what a painted hypocrite you are, That's true spirituality. I've been to conferences years ago where the preaching took the form of what wretched, vile sinners Christians are. How much sin you still have in your life. And concentrate on that for three or four messages. Get up. Each preacher gets up and tries to outdo himself as to how vile Christians are and how much remaining sin they have. And I can tell you this, it kills you to sit under that. Let me give another quote. This is from Berkeley. Bishop Berkeley says, I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot preach, but I sin. I cannot administer nor receive the Holy Sacrament, but I sin. 
My very repentance needs to be repented of, and the tears I shed need washing in the blood of Christ. Now, what he's saying there is true. It's true that everything that we do as Christians falls short of the of the glory of God. Jim prayed here this morning. Dick asked Jim to pray. And uh, if we just got back and started to analyze that and say, well, wait a minute. <clears throat> he didn't have as much fervency as he could have had, did he? I mean, he wasn't. He wasn't. I mean, there could have been more. And I'm sure he didn't have as much faith as he could have had. I mean, look at how short. Think of all that God's done for us. And that much unbelief still in your life. And you just go through it and you begin to analyze this thing. We could spend the entire day picking apart that prayer and saying how it all fell short of the glory of God and how it was not perfect and how much sin there was in it. You could do that. Or you could stop and think and say, what a miracle that God has saved somebody who used to hate Him and turned Him into someone that loves Him who's able to pray. You see the difference? What's the mentality of Scripture? I mean, you look at Hebrews 11. Go down through that list. God just overlooked everything they did wrong and talks about all the wonderful things that they did right. That's the mentality of Scripture. Brother Merle uh, had this illustration of the garbage can. <clears throat> he said, you go and, you know, here you've got this, this house that you know, it started out an old run-down, beat-up thing, and it's all fixed up on the inside. And somebody comes in, and they say, wow, this place really looks a lot better. And you hang your head. You say, yeah, but there's something I've got to tell you about. And you go over and pull out the garbage can and sit down in the living room. Everybody sits around in a circle, and you say, look at this. Now, do you see what's wrong with that? That's exactly what these guys are doing. That's exactly what they're doing. And they think that it's spirituality. And it's being misled by the devil. That's what it is. You just go to Scripture and, and try to find your wretched Christian verses. I mean, there's all kinds of verses about being dead to sin and alive to God and seated in heavenly places and the power of Christ directed toward us. But go try to find the wretched Christian verses. They're not there. That leads me to the third negative. And that is those who hold this view and yet want to escape this wretched Christian view of Romans 7 are forced to tone down the language until it's almost unrecognizable. Now, I want to give you some examples of that. I quoted one of these a couple of weeks ago, a man that has greatly blessed me by his commentaries. But uh, he was commenting on Romans 7.14, I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. This is what he says. Every earnest Christian advances in goodness, but he cannot arrive at perfection. Why not? Because he is sold under sin. Now, what's that do? Well, this is the translation. 
All that the term sold into bondage to sin means is that you haven't arrived at perfection. Now, you talk about toning down the language. Here's another one. Well-known theologian, greatly respected in our day. He describes Romans 7 like this. The Christian's reach always exceeds his grasp. Well, it's true. Christian's reach always exceeds his grasp. We're falling short all the time of even our own standards. But, beloved, uh, that's not what Paul is describing in Romans 7. To use his own language, he's describing a state of bondage, wretchedness, and inability to do good. Now, you've got to take that a long ways to get it to the thing of Christians aren't perfect. That's what Paul's teaching here. And remember this, Romans 7 is talking about known sin. Very clear here. He's talking about known sin and known defeat by known sin. That's the theme of Romans 7. Now, in connection with this, I want to quote something from John Piper's recent messages on Romans 7. Not to put him down, but to try to help your understanding of this. I trust that it will be helpful to interact with a real person, not a straw man. We should thank God for John Piper. And I'm not in any way putting Piper down. That you've got to learn to be, no matter who it is, including me or anyone else speaking, you've got to learn to listen critically and to think about what's, what's being said. Because after all, we Protestants don't believe in any pope, do we? There's nobody that you just sit back and relax, and I don't have to examine this by Scripture because what they say is ex cathedra. That's not true. Now, this is what he says about verse 25. You remember verse 25? Paul sums up everything he's been saying before. He says, With my mind I'm serving the law of God, with the flesh the law of sin. What did that mean? Well, it means that he's wanting to do good, but the flesh is making him a prisoner of the law of sin in his members. That's, that was the context, and we looked at that already. This is what he says about verse 25. Now, my point here is that if you don't take the wretched Christian view, you're going to have to change the meaning of this passage. Now, this is verse 25, <clears throat> quoting from Piper's Sermons. When Paul says in Romans 7.25b, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, he means, now you want to hear what Paul means when he says this? He means, quote, by the transforming power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, I set my mind on the treasure of Jesus Christ and all that God is for me in Him and all that I am in Him and all that I will become through Him. That's what, it, that's what this verse means. And I believe Him and trust Him, and trust in His help and power. And I act on that faith. And if I stumble, I do not yield to the temptation to deny Christ or my true life in Him. I repent and I revel in His forgiveness and fight on. Now, that's amazing to me. When Paul says, with my mind I serve the law of God, what he means is, by the transforming power of the Spirit, I set my mind on the treasure of Jesus Christ. You see, that's not in the passage at all. You have to import that in totally. 
Beloved, there's not one mention of the Holy Spirit in this whole passage. And that ought to tell us a lot. There's nothing about the Spirit here, nothing about walking in the Spirit, nothing about anything related to the Spirit. And it's not talking about trying to please Christ and live the Christian life. It's talk, This man's talking about law. He's law-centered. I consent unto the law that is good. It's a totally different thing. Now, we could quote more of that, but I just want to give you an illustration. That's what happens. That's what you have to do if you don't take the wretched Christian view of this and you say this is Paul at his best, you've got to change the meaning of it. You've got to introduce words like occasionally or sometimes and so on. Here he says, and if I stumble, I do not yield to the temptation to deny Christ. If I stumble. You see how that's toned down? It's not, this guy in Romans 7 is not an if I stumble. It's a wretched man who is defeated, living a life of defeat by sin. A general pattern of wretched defeat by known sin by a man who is described as of flesh sold into bondage to sin. That is turned into if I stumble. And words have to be imported in. Let me just give you some quotes here. He, that is Paul, is describing himself at times in his Christian life. Notice the word at times, which is introduced. And he is describing all of us at times in our Christian life. Now, you see the difference here between Piper and Pink in this particular place anywhere. Anyway, Pink's saying every day and every hour. He's saying at times in the Christian life. So he's talking here about defeat, occasional defeat by known sin. In other places, he speaks against perfectionism, and that's similar to what Pink is saying. That is, none of us is perfect. You can't even sleep the way a sinless man would sleep. You sin all the time in that sense. But that's not what he's talking about here. But anyway, here's another one. Paul is talking about himself and a part of his life that he experiences now as a believer. So there you introduce the part of his life. Here's another one. We are not in constant slavery to sin, but we slip back into it from time to time. And sin is spoken of as enslaving us in one sense in those times. And you see how many of those things you've got to add? In one sense in those times. So, in other words, when Paul says, I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin... What he really means is, I sometimes choose to let sin reign in my mortal body, although I know I don't have to. Now, you have to read the whole course of the sermons to get that, but that's what, that's what you've got to say. I sometimes choose to let sin reign, though I know I don't have to. Well, that's not what he says. I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Not I sell myself into it occasionally or something like that, or I let it reign or whatever. Well... Uh, Again, I want to say this. John Piper is talking about a reality in the Christian life. And the reality is is that none of us perfectly obeys God. None of us is without sin. None of us ever gets to the point where there's nothing that we know of even that we haven't failed God in in some way over a period of weeks and months. I mean, there's going to be things just like he's talking about here. But the idea that you... and you know, I know he wouldn't say this, but the the idea that most people take from these verses 
is that you've got to be defeated by known sin. And that's a lie. And I think that the correct understanding of this passage helps a lot in taking the ground out from under the devil in that. Now, Lord willing, next time then we'll go on and look at the third view of Romans 7. And that says that Paul is writing about a Christian here, but he is an immature Christian, or he's a carnal Christian. And he hasn't yet learned to walk in the Spirit, or he hasn't had this deeper work in his life, and he hasn't yet passed into Romans 8. And uh, Lord willing, I'll try to bring out both the positives and the negatives of that. It's not just negatives. There's some good things in what those people are saying. And we'll try to bring that out and bring out also the negative aspects of it next time. Well, um, I hope that uh, we can see the value. See, this this is not something to try to put down other people's views. But I, I think it is helpful to us to understand where things lead and where the, how they've been abused. And if we can just understand even the setting and the reasons for why people are taking different positions, it's helpful. So, may the Lord help us to apply ourselves to understanding and to walking in these things that we've looked at here today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You'd take anything good from this time and seal it to our hearts and anything not good, that You'd just wash it away. And we pray that we might um, go forward in the Christian life. We pray that You'd help us to search the Scriptures and to cry out to You for understanding. Pray that we wouldn't leave this section in uh, some kind of a haze or maze, but that it would be clear to everyone here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's be dismissed.